Today we are basically wrapping up our discussion on um, a church that treasures Christ rather than money. Um, But in doing so, I want to kind of draw our attention really back to how the gospel shapes our entire life. Not just in the area of money, um, but that it radically changes our perspective on life in general. And uh, we're going to tie money back into that one more time. But then we're going to kind of conclude with some practical ways at looking how not only are we called to give our money to Christ, but we're called to give our time to Christ. That we are called to structure our schedule. The way that we function seven days a week is meant to look radically different uh, for a believer in comparison to a non-believer. So I want to get real practical, hopefully at the end, give you some really uh, practical suggestions for how you can begin to... Budget your time. Budgeting your time is what I want to wrap up with today. We've talked a ton about budgeting our money, structuring our money differently in the way that we give to people in need. We give to this church. We give to others in in our daily context that we see needing our money. We've talked about how to be responsible with our money. Um, But I think it's important that we also see that we're to be responsible with our time. That just as... Uh, money is emphasized in the New Testament as something that a, a disciple gives to Christ. So is his regular weekly schedule, but it looks radically different. Um, so we're looking at how the gospel shapes our life today. And uh, I want to give you specifically three different areas where, where the gospel shapes the, the perspective that we have once we come to Christ. Um, first in your notes there, the gospel shapes my view of history. The gospel shapes my view of history. In talking about money and discussing um, a church that treasures Christ rather than money, we looked at how the gospel absolutely makes sense as an investment option for us with our money. We looked at how the gospel is promised to work by Jesus in the New Testament when he says, I'm not coming back until disciples are made in all nations. We looked at the book of Revelation. We glimpsed into into the future of history and saw how that does get accomplished, that there are disciples from every nation that worship Christ one day before the throne, crying out to him that he's worthy and that he's holy. And so the gospel makes sense as an investment option for us as believers. It's guaranteed to work. It's not going to crash. It's not going to be a, a source of disappointment. It will be fulfilled the way that Jesus promises. And you notice there, a disciple understands history is about God Saving man from sin through Christ for his glory. That's what history is about. That's where history is moving towards. We're a small blip on the timeline of history of God saving man from sin through Christ for his glory. We get, we get brought into that timeline for, for a few years. But ultimately, from the garden all the way till the return of Christ, when he reestablishes heaven and earth and institutes eternity, it's all about God saving man from sin through Christ for his glory. We see from some familiar passages, passages that we've looked at many times that I want to read again to you today. Matthew 28, Start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. Till the end of the age. We've talked about the responsibility that each one of us has. If we're a Christian, we've been called to make disciples. We talked about how the need is so crucial and important. Because in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
And in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We know this. We know this. But I believe it has two important implications for us that we haven't really touched on yet. Implication number one is that God is just as interested as where our disciples come from as he is with how many we make. Let that sink in. God is just as interested as where our disciples come from as he is with how many we make. The goal isn't to make as many disciples as possible. It's to make disciples in as many nations as possible. I don't know if any of you saw the interview that uh, John Piper and David Platt did with each other this week. I'm just thankful those two guys are friends. Um, For the longest time I was listening to David Platt's sermons in Birmingham. Um... You know, just coming on the scene, and I kind of wondered, like, how long will it take for David Platt to begin to interact with some of these other guys that that are familiar um, in Christian bookstores? And I saw the two of them sit down this week, and they were talking about missions. David Platt is speaking at John Piper's church coming up in a few months at their missions conference. And they were dialoguing about this, that the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations. And David Platt made the comment, he said, it's not about how many disciples we can make, it's about how many nations we can make disciples in. And I think it's important that we keep that in context. That as a church, we're planning here in Sonoy, and we have a desire to spread the gospel here in Sonoy and make disciples of people here in Sonoy. But if our goal and our mission ends right there, then we have failed to fulfill the Great Commission. This church has to be global-minded because that's the Great Commission. Jesus says, I'm not coming back until there are disciples in every nation. Until the gospel goes around the world. He doesn't say, I'm not coming back until disciples are in every neighborhood in Sonoy. But that's not to downplay the importance of what we're doing here. It's crucial what we're doing as we plant this church here. But this church has to maintain a global perspective. Because that's what we're called to be. That's where we're called to go. To go to the ends of the earth. The goal is to make disciples in as many nations as possible. Which leads to implication number two. Some of us, and I believe this, some of us need to sell everything and go. I believe that God desires some of us in this room to sell everything, to go and spread the gospel around the world. Now I've shared with you before, my desire is that we we send more and more of you out over the next few years. As missionaries. And I've told you before that that part of the reason that Lauren and I are still here is because we believe we're not done investing in you guys. And our hope is to send more to the field than just simply us going. If If we go, that's two of us. If we stay here, plant a church that's global-minded, our hope and desire is that we can send more than just two, that we can regularly send people out of this church as we preach gospel and we preach mission in this church. Some of us need to go. But the implication continues, the rest of us need to earn money to support those that go. Being involved in missions is not optional. You either go or you send. Some of us need to hang on to our stuff, hang on to our house, hang on to our cars, hang on to our jobs, because there are people that are going to come out of this church that need our money to go. We've already talked about Chris Henson going to Uganda. He's already purchased land. He's already got a vision for what he desires to do over there. Sharing the gospel in an area, making disciples in an area over there that he's targeting. We want to be a church that can fully support him if necessary. That he feels called to go. Those of us that don't feel at this point in our life we're supposed to go, we need to be intentional about staying and working hard, making lots of money so that these guys can go. I hope that there's never a situation where somebody in our church says, I would love to go, but I just can't afford it. Someone comes to me and says, hey, I feel like I'm supposed to go do mission here. My hope is that Sovereign Hope can say, great, go. We've got the money. We want to support you. We want to send you. Some of us go, some of us stay. Now, it's important that we don't begin to think that one is better than the other, that one is more valuable than the other, because both are necessary. I mean, if everybody in this room said, hey, I'll sign up and go, 
Now there's no money to support you to send you to go. We see this even as Jesus interacts with, with people in his ministry and people get saved. Jesus tells some people to come follow him, right? He interacts with some of the disciples and says, leave everything, come follow me. Anybody know what he tells the guy that was uh, in the tomb, in the, in the cemetery, who was possessed by demons and he, and he frees him from demons? What does he tell that guy to do? He says, go home. That guy says, let me come follow you. He gets, I mean, he gets saved. He gets radically changed. These demons are completely removed from him. I mean, he says, I'm ready to follow you. He actually begs Jesus, let me go with you. Let me go with you and, and do what you're doing in ministry. Jesus looks at him and says, no. He says, you go home and you do ministry in your hometown. And we're told that this guy goes home, begins to share his story, and people are amazed by it. People are challenged by the change that God has made in his life. Some of us go. Some of us stay. One's not better than the other. Both are absolutely crucial for the gospel going around the globe. The implication is that this church has to be mission-minded with our money. We have to be. It's not about how many disciples we can make in Sonoy. It's not about how many converts we can see come to Christ here in Sonoy. That's a goal, yes. We want to see that happen, yes. But we've got to think long term. We want to see people saved in Sonoy that come into this church that get a heart for missions and get out of Sonoy and go around the world. That needs to be our vision. It's not just making people in Sonoy saved and letting them stay in their comfort zone here in Sonoy. We want to see people saved in Sonoy and we want to see them leave Sonoy and go around the world. The gospel changes our view of history. Secondly, the gospel shapes my view of money. We've talked about this extensively over the past few weeks. The gospel shapes my view of money. The disciple understands that money should be spent on eternity rather than today. The disciple understands that money should be spent on eternity rather than today. Implication number one, the Holy Spirit changes us so that the world no longer has a sway over us. Instead, we reject the lifestyle we once lived, instead investing our lives for eternity. First John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 and First John chapter 5 are a great example of tension that exists from God doing something and our responsibility to do it. God tells us something will happen, but then there's also this implication that we have to still do it. First John chapter 2. We'll start with our responsibility. Verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is all about human responsibility here. Our responsibility in our sanctification is to not love the world or the things in the world. To reject the world's mentality about how to live life. Instead, to stay consistent and to pursue Christ. We go on to see, and there's, there's a warning there. If we don't do it, then, then we're not really saved. The Father's not in us. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. First John 5, chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who's truly saved is going to overcome the world. That's what John says. He says, if you're truly a Christian in here, you're going to figure this out. You're going to submit to the Holy Spirit. You're going to apply the things that we've been learning about money. You're going to turn your back on the things of this world. You're going to commit your life to the gospel. You're going to give your resources to the gospel. John says it's guaranteed to happen. It's just for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the Holy Spirit changes us. Implication number two. The standard in the New Testament for how we should give is certainly higher than what was expected in the Old Testament. We talked about this a little bit the last couple of weeks in regards to tithing. I told you that the concept of 10% strikingly absent in the New Testament. 
that you can build a case for 10% in the Old Testament. But when you really begin to look at it, uh, national Israel was more than likely given close to 25% of, of what they were bringing in to the purposes of God. Now, I told you that some of that was designated in the same sense as our taxes. So I don't necessarily want to convey to you that in the New Testament we're supposed to give more than 25% as a standard. There's some things that you have to work through. How was the Old Testament functioning? How was national Israel, which was a country, different than the church, which is not a country? But the standard, whatever standard we see in the Old Testament, whether we want to go with 10% or whatever, the standard in the Old Testament is clearly less than it is in the New Testament. Because when we see Jesus come on the scene, he begins to radically reinterpret people's understanding of the law. Matthew chapter 5 is filled with this phrase. In We'll start in verse 21. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Skip down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely. But shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus comes on the scene and radically raises the standard in all these points about their interpretation of the law. They understood the law in this way. They set standards that if you met these standards, you were good to go. And Jesus raises the standard in such a way that it's really hard to check it off a list. He says it's not just about not committing murder. It's about loving people around you and not hating them. It's not about not sleeping with someone who's not your wife. It's about not looking at the opposite sex in that way. He radically transforms their understanding of the law. And I think the same is true in regards to the rest of the New Testament and what it has to say about money. That it's not about 10%. It's about being known as generous people. It's about being known as givers, not hoarders. It's a radical new perspective in the New Testament. So the implication is the standard should be set for us in a higher way than what we see in the Old Testament. And then implication number three. In order for God to receive the glory for how he has changed our view of money, people must understand that our view of money has changed. I'm going to continue to harp on this idea that we have to become more transparent with how we're using our money if God is to receive the credit for the change that has happened in regards to money. If we keep giving and how we're changing our perspective about life and how we spend our money completely private, then it makes it very difficult for our light to shine and for God to receive the glory that he is due. They must see us give it, save it, and spend it differently. We ought to be faithful to share what God has done for us. It's a part of our testimony. It's a part of what we share with others. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life. We share what we're learning and studying scripture. We share what we're, we're learning and how we're experiencing um, the Holy Spirit's power as we share the gospel with others. But my fear, and I was reading um, Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity this week. He said that if we're not careful, um, I'm just going gonna, gonna to think of an example. Let's say that Adam's mom comes to stay with them. And let's say that Adam and Jen have sat down and they've kind of budgeted their money. Let's say they decide, hey, we're not going to get cable and we're not going to get internet because we want to use that money for, for a different purpose. We want to set that side of money that we would usually use for that and use it differently. If Adam's mom comes and visits, 
Her perspective is probably going to be, if there's no cable and no internet, that Adam and Jen just can't afford it. Right? Like, if we see people driving clunker cars, our first impression is not, man, those guys make a a serious sacrifice to give their money to missions and drive a beat-up car when they could probably really afford something a lot nicer. Right? Usually our, our, our first thought is, man, those guys must not make a whole lot of money. Like, they must not be able to afford anything better than that car they drive. Most people buy houses based on what they can afford. People need to hear that the reason we're doing things differently is because the Holy Spirit is changing us. It's not that I don't have cable because I can't afford it. It's I'm using my cable money for a different purpose. If I wanted cable, I could have it. If I wanted a bigger car, I could have it. A better, a better car, a better house. I could have those things, but I choose not to have those things. If we're not careful, we'll simply convey this message that we can't afford those things. That we would have them if we could, we just can't afford them. We've got to be able to figure out a balance between not promoting and being prideful about what we're doing, but still being able to convey to a lost world that we are living differently now. That the Holy Spirit has radically changed our perspective on money. We want God to receive the glory for the changes that we're making. Then lastly here, the gospel shapes my view of time. The gospel shapes my view of time. This is where I want us to kind of settle in. Um, And I want us to discuss how a disciple understands that giving time is just as crucial as giving money. You guys have responded by giving of your money the last few weeks. And I know that the Holy Spirit is working in your hearts and I know he's changing and challenging your perspective about things. And I know some of you have begun to sit down and make sacrifices. You begin to reevaluate your budgets so that you can factor in a higher level of giving. But I think giving of our time is going to be just as important to this church as giving our money. Giving of our time is going to be just as important as the giving of our money. Implication number one that I put in our notes is that time is one area where God has distributed to us equally. You realize that everybody has 24 hours in a day. There's other things that God doesn't distribute equally, right? Like we've talked about how we all make different amounts of money. God distributes money differently. He distributes talents differently. He distributes spiritual gifts differently. But time has been equally distributed for all of us. There's not anybody in here that has more time in their day than somebody else. There's not anybody in here that has less time in their day than somebody else. We all have 24 hours, 7 days a week. And I think it's important that we note that. Now, based on our choices, some of us have already committed big chunks of our 24 hours a day to things that we've chosen to make a part of our life. Which means that we all started off with 24 hours, but now that's changed. So some of us have more leftover time to budget than others. For example, Paul says that if you want to be fully devoted to serving Christ and have all the time in the world to do that, don't get married. He says you would be better off not marrying because you have more time to do the service of Christ. If you want more free time to do ministry and to do gospel type activities... He says, don't get married. He doesn't condemn marriage. He doesn't look down upon marriage. He just makes a simple statement. By getting married, it necessarily limits and takes up time in your schedule that can't be devoted to church activities or gospel ministry. So some of us have made the choice to get married in here, which means a portion of our time is devoted to being a husband or a wife. Others of us in here have made the decision to have kids. And that, again, takes up time in our schedule that we still have to make a choice to budget time for, but it's a necessary item in our understanding of where our time needs to go. Okay? But God has distributed all time equally to us. I put next, we all have a responsibility to examine Scripture, making sure our schedules are filled With activities, the word says should occupy our time. Here's what I want to make sure we understand. 
getting married, having kids, choosing to be a student and work a job, do not lift the activity requirements that are given to us in God's Word. Just because we make willing choices to use our time in certain ways that bring glory and honor to God through being married, through being a dad or a mom, it doesn't lift our responsibility to do these things that God calls us to in His Word. For some of us, it's more difficult to fit all these things into our schedule because we are married, because we do have kids, because we do work more than one job, because we are a student and working. But it doesn't lift the responsibility that we have to do these things. These things are given to us in Scripture as things that should occupy our time as a disciple. We have to make sure that our schedules are filled with these activities. Number one, evangelism. Number one, evangelism. I don't really like that word. I can't think of a better word for it. To me, that word communicates... um, I don't like to separate separate evangelism and discipleship. I think as we share the gospel, it necessitates us going all the way with it. That we don't just share the gospel, see people get saved, and then say, good luck the rest of the way. That if we take the time to share the gospel and someone responds, it necessitates that we go all the way with them and we teach them everything that God has commanded. But for the sake of how we're looking at our schedules, we'll separate them. Evangelism. We are to be living in such a way where others are led to be saved. We are to live in such a way where others are led to be saved. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the time we stop right there and we just say, okay, um, I need to make sure that everything that I'm doing gives glory to God. But there's a reason for that. Verse 32. Verse 32. Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. The reason that we eat and drink and do everything for the glory of God is so people will get saved. Because ultimately God gets glory through people being saved. It's through us living in an obedient way to where others are drawn to live that way as well through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have to live in such a way where others are being led to be saved. It's more than just going out and sharing the gospel with people that we don't know. It's radically structuring our schedules so that everything that we do brings glory and honor to God in such a way that people are drawn to be saved. Secondly, discipleship. We are to be living in such a way where others are led to be more Christ-like. These things have to be in our schedules. It doesn't matter how busy you think you are. These things have to be there. These things have to be there. We have to be living in such a way where people are are, are being drawn to salvation. We have to be living in such a way where people are being led to be more Christ-like based on the example that we're setting. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We're to pursue things in such a way where it contributes to the upbuilding of others. The spiritual growth, the encouragement of other people around us. Philippians 1, 23-25. For I am hard pressed between the two. This is Paul talking about whether or not he wants to die or whether or not he wants to live. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that that is all right. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Make sure you get that. Paul says... If it was up to me, I'd like to go 
I'd like to go on and be in heaven with Jesus. He says, I long for it. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get out of here. I'm ready to be done. I'm ready to put this world behind me. I'm ready to put sin behind me. I'm ready to put trials and tribulations and anxiety and worry and sickness and everything that comes with sin in this world. All the consequences and effects of sin. I'm ready to be done with it. He says, but I have a real desire to stay because I want to see you guys grow in Christ. He says, I want to stay. I want to, I want to invest in you. I want to pour my life into you. I want to see you progress. Progress in your relationship with Christ. Hebrews 10, 23-25, passage we've looked at numerous times about spurring each other on to good works. We're to be living in such a way where others are led to be more Christ-like. And then number three, fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing. We are to be living in such a way where good works flow out of our day. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is right after Paul says we're not saved by good works. Good works don't save us. And then he goes right up and follows it up with but when you're saved you start to do good works. He says you were destined for them. It's part of God's eternal design that you begin to do good works. That we begin to produce fruit. Colossians 1.10 So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. These are three sample areas that, that, that Scripture commands have to be a part of our daily schedule. Like we, we've got to be living in such a way where evangelism is true. The gospel is being shared. Whether it's just verbally or whether it's just the way that we structure our life. Where everything is being done for God's glory. Discipleship has to be a part of our life. It has to be a part of our schedule. We have a responsibility to upbuild other people around us. We have the responsibility to pour into other people. People that are less mature than us spiritually. We have to invest in them. That takes time. And we've also talked about how it takes resources and money to do that sometimes. Discipleship and fruit bearing have to be a part of our life. Implication number two, and make sure you get this. Busyness does not mean I am diligent, faithful, or fruitful. Busyness does not guarantee that you are being diligent, faithful, or fruitful. And I put in my notes, by the way, we are all busy. We're all busy. I don't know why sometimes we seem to, to try to compete with each other about how busy we are. I've never met anybody, I don't recall meeting anybody that ever said, I'm having a really hard time finding stuff to fill up my schedule every day. I've just got so much free time. Like, I'm just never busy. Like, everybody we interact with and talk to is busy. Like, we're all busy. But being busy doesn't guarantee that we're being diligent, faithful, and fruitful. Lost people are busy. Unbelievers are busy. We've got to make sure that in being busy, we're being busy with the right things. We've got to make sure we're being busy about the right things. Implication number three. In order to be rich in good works, we must carefully plan our schedules To make sure we are accomplishing good works. In order to be rich in good works, we must make sure we structure our schedules to where we're accomplishing good works. Romans 12.10, love one another in brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul promotes this healthy competition. Within the church and says you should be striving to outdo each other in how you serve. You should be striving to outdo each other. In loving and serving and being about the gospel. Outdo one another. We've looked at 1 Timothy 6. We've looked at its implications for our money. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Paul seems to make these two separate things. Like he says, you need to be rich in good works and you need to be generous and ready to share. So it's not just that being generous, go ahead and check off like that's all the good works that I'm responsible for. Like we're to be generous with our money, but generous with our money doesn't always necessitate that discipleship's happening. This is we're to be rich in good works. We're to be like filled up, like we're to have a plethora of good works that are taking place in our schedules. We're to be about the gospel. We're to be structuring our life where evangelism, discipleship, and fruit bearing is happening regularly. We're to be rich in good works. Now as way of application, this is where I want us to wrap up. Maximizing my time for God's glory. By doing the important things. Why are we talking about time? I've already told you that I think the church, especially as a church plant, desperately needs your time given to this work. I can't do everything on my own. I can't. I work a full-time job. Starting Monday, I go back to work. I estimate that I'm going to be working about 50 hours a week at least at Trinity. A typical full-time job is 40 hours. Based on the amount of time that I have to prepare for the next day. And, and, you know, I talk with with different guys about the disadvantages of trying to plan a church and be a school teacher. Because a lot of times you go to a full-time job, you go to the job, you leave the job, and you're done with the job. Unfortunately, with, with teaching, you go to the job, you get done with the job, and then you go home and you continue to do the job as you get ready for tomorrow. Most of us get to show up and be told what to do the next day i got to show up and tell other people what to do the next day. So 50 hours potentially a week that I'm going to have to work at Trinity. You take that out of my schedule immediately. It's gone. There's not enough time in my schedule to do everything that's required within this church plan. I spent about 10 hours yesterday doing stuff related to this church. I'm not going to have that kind of time come Monday. Like it, it all starts to change. This church desperately needs your time and investment. And as we give you opportunities to commit time here, we desperately need you to respond. Because one to two people can't accomplish what needs to happen for this church to be successful. Not successful from a world mentality, but successful from a biblical mentality. The key, the key is that we're not going to always tell you how to do that. In the same way, I'm not going to tell you how much money to give to this church. And I'm not going to tell you how to use your other money. I'm going to trust that you can be responsible, that the Holy Spirit can train you and teach you and mature you in that. We're not going to schedule. We're not going to schedule every time we need you to be committing time to this church. Meaning, we want a simplified, required schedule here at Sovereign Hope. Which means we're not going to have Sunday school. We're not going to have Sunday morning service. We're not going to have Sunday night service. We're not going to have Wednesday prayer meeting. We're not going to have all these required meetings where you come to. But in no way does that mean that, whew, like get rid of all that time that I used to have to invest in the church. And now I'm free to do whatever I want because, man, we only meet on Sundays, Sunday morning, and then We might only do small groups every other week. Like, think about how great that's going to be to just fill my schedule with whatever I want to do now. That's not the case. What we want to do is decrease the amount of required things that you have to come to so that you can be creative in your own talents and gifts and personalities to do church with each other throughout the week in the way that you want to do it. Meaning, let's say that we decide to have small groups every other week. Maybe you get together with some people that you don't get to see often and say, hey, I'm going to start inviting you over to my house on the weeks that we don't have small group. And we're just going to start eating together. It's not going to be structured. We're not going to have curriculum that the church provides. But I'm just going to invite people over to my house on Mondays every week because this is the week that we don't do small group. I'm going to have people over. We're going to watch Monday night football. Or I'm going to I'm going to do this on Saturday mornings with somebody. See, we want to decrease the amount of things that you have to come to. 
so that you're free to do things that fit your schedule that allow you to function with your creativity, talents, and desires. It's not that we want you meeting less as a church. It's that we want you meeting in a way that brings you joy because you're structuring it yourself. There's a lot more joy for you to give in that box as you leave if I don't tell you how much to give. You get to sit down and say, I want to give this amount. I believe that God's leading me to give this. I'm not fulfilling some law. I'm not fulfilling some requirement. This is what I want to give. In the same way, we don't want you fulfilling some law that our church sets up that says you need to be here, 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 and here every week. We want you to feel the freedom to still be actively involved in this church on a weekly basis, but on your terms according to your schedule. To where people are still being loved and cared for and discipled and ministered to. And you guys know there are people in our church that, that, um, that need that. That need to be sought after and befriended and loved on. That don't have that naturally as, as much as others in this church do. And they've come to this church desiring it and craving for it. And asking for friendship and for love and for encouragement. And it gives us the opportunity to do that. This church needs your time, but we're not going to always tell you how to use it. We're going to expect you to be mature enough to read scripture and say, hmm, scripture says that I'm supposed to be hospitable. Well, in order for you to be hospitable, it means that we can't require you to be at church all the time. It means that you need to be at home inviting people from church to your house to be hospitable towards. All right, I want to give you some, some real quick suggestions about budgeting your time. I was reading... Um, on Sovereign Grace's website last night, C.J. Mahaney, he was giving some principles, and I was like, it was weird because I realized that I was doing those things. I just didn't realize how to categorize it and how to, like, explain it. <clears throat> We've talked about budgeting your money, and again, we do hope to offer an opportunity in the future for us to sit down and give guidance to those who want wisdom and how to budget their money. But I want to give you some suggestions on how to budget your time. We've all got the same amount of time. We've all got seven days a week. Are we going to be able to maximize it by doing the important things? First question for you to ask yourself. As you look at seven days a week, 24 hours a day, where, is those, where are those hours going to go? I think it starts with defining what your roles are. You've personally got to ask yourself, what are your roles? What are your roles? And by that I mean, and I wrote down... Um, last night I was up and I was just thinking through this and I wrote down some things that I am. Okay. For me, I am a Christian. I am a husband. I am a church planter. I am an elder. I am a teacher. Okay, those are, those are a few things that I am. Things that I am. Others of you would need to write down, I am a father. I am a student. Um, other things that you might hesitate to write down, but are still true, that are still going to take up some of your time. I am a sports fan. Okay, like I enjoy sports. That takes up some of my time during the week. I am an outdoorsman. I like to fish and I like to hunt. So I would say for you to, to think about how to maximize your schedule, it starts with you writing down the things that you are. What are you? And I would try to limit them as much as you can. Like I didn't write down, um, didn't write down that I'm a, I'm a Christian and, and I'm a church member. Because I think we, we've established and will continue to establish the fact that, that a Christian is a church member, like it, it aligns itself with the local church. So by being a Christian, you, you devote yourself to the local church. So it's not necessary to necessarily separate those. Okay? But I would encourage you to think through what you are. What you are. And as you begin to write those things down, You've got to ask yourself, am I too many things? Am I too many things to where some of these things are going to suffer? Because the moment that we are these things, we have a responsibility to be these things. Or else we're not doing things in an excellent way. 
Like I've already, I've already pretty much decided that if Trinity asks me to uh, to coach football when I get there on Monday, that I'm going to have to tell them no. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a church planner. I'm an elder. I'm a teacher. I ain't got time right now to be a coach. Right? Like I'm looking at five big roles that I've already got. Six, because I'm a sportsman and I like being outdoors. And sometimes coaching interferes with doing that. I ain't got time to be a coach right now. I just don't. Too often we take on roles that we can't do in an excellent way and they suffer. And a lot of times it's roles within the church that people take on and say, yeah, I'll do that. And it suffers. Because these other things take priority. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a coach. I'm a whatever employee. Yeah, I'll be a deacon. Yeah, I'll be a committee member. But then we don't really do those things. Like I've served at numerous churches and and known that people were deacons and elders and never really saw them function in that capacity. If we're going to be something, let's be something. So it starts with you writing down what you are. Then secondly, what are my responsibilities and my goals? What are my responsibilities and my goals? I put in my notes, I don't know if it's in yours, I need to equip myself for these, ro- for these roles and function in these roles. For some of these roles, we got to be better at doing them. You know, like part of being a parent is learning how to be a parent. Sometimes that involves um, reading books about parenting. There's some really good ones out there that talk about how to shepherd your child's heart. Some of it involves interacting with other parents that, that have maybe done it before you. Hey, can you help me better understand how to do this? So there's an equipping aspect to some of these. And then there's also a functioning aspect. Like I have to function as some of these things. So as a Christian, for my notes here, I put, as a Christian, I must, these are things that I have to do if I'm a Christian. I must commune with my father. Notice I didn't put that I have to have a two-hour quiet time every day. But I did put down, I have to commune with my father. Like that's a response. That's what I'm supposed to be as a Christian. I'm an, I'm an adopted child of God. I need time to commune with my Father. I need to pursue sanctification. That's God's will for my life. He says my will is for you to be sanctified. I need to be devoted to the local church. I need to share the gospel. I need to disciple other believers. Like that's a short list of things that as a Christian I'm supposed to do. It doesn't mean that they have to happen every day. Doesn't mean that they have to happen necessarily every week, but these are goals and responsibilities that I have as a Christian. As a husband, I must what? What are some things that we could fill out there for as a husband or as a wife? What are some things that would naturally go on that list? As a husband or wife, I must love my wife, and I put love love her in a biblical way. That, that's that's. Even more responsibility than what's traditionally taught just in our culture. There's bigger responsibility as a Christian what it means to love. Because we're to love as Christ loved the church. That's a big responsibility. That takes a lot of time to love your wife or to love your husband in a biblical way. What else? Yeah, as a husband, I've got to provide for my family. Right? Like I'm not afforded the opportunity to work and make less money than we need. So that I have more time to do what I want to do, right? Like I have to evaluate, this is what my, my family needs, so I've got to work this amount of hours to get this amount of money. So as a husband, I've got to do these things. I've got to love my wife biblically, and I've got to provide for our family. As a teacher, as a teacher, I must prepare adequately to instruct each day. I mean, I've got to go home every day and get ready to teach the next day. I've got to oversee the academic development of each student. That means grading papers. That means grading them in such a way where I offer feedback and help teach them what they've done wrong so they can do better. I've got to keep parents updated on the progress of their student. Those are big responsibilities. Those are things that are going to take up time in my schedule. As a student, as a student, you would have to what? Study. You have to commit yourself to your studies. 
You don't just get to go to class and be done at the end of class. You've got to go home and get ready for class the next day. That takes up time in your schedule. It's a commitment. Um, as an elder, as an elder, what are some things that I must do? This is you telling me, as an elder of this church, your expectations for what you think an elder must do in this church. Be available. To lead? Know the Word, which constitutes studying the Word, which usually implies studying more than the average Christian. It, sh- it shouldn't necessarily be that way, but that's typically the expectation, is that an elder would spend more time in the Word. And why would it be necessary for an elder to spend more time in the Word? What else is expectations for an elder? Okay, direction, which is usually fed by the process of teaching the Word. Which means I've got to study in such a way that I can teach the Word. It's not just about me having five-minute devotions. Not that there's anything wrong with maybe the average church member having five-minute devotions. Five-minute devotions ain't cutting it in here for me to come in on Sunday morning and teach you guys based on 35 minutes in the Word this week. I mean, that just ain't cutting it. The other thing is that Scripture says an elder has to protect the church from false doctrine. So you have to be able to know it for the purity of the church, but also be able to contradict it when someone starts sharing stuff that ain't right. Which necessitates a lot of homework being done to where you know doctrine to recognize false doctrine. Other things that you would say would be an expectation of me as an elder of this church. Right. Yeah, there's all kinds of different situations that are going to arise in this church that, that as the elder of the church, as the teaching elder of this church specifically, that I've got to be prepared for to know how to counsel and how to help and how to lead and help guide people through. Huh? Right. Yep. Delegate, yeah. Yeah, because I don't want to spend the amount of hours that I'm spending right now doing some of the stuff that I'm having to do. I need to get rid of that and delegate that and trust people to do it and me not have to do it, which is a struggle for me a lot of times that, that I'm used to trying to handle everything and being able to pass that off and say I'm done with that and you do it and I'm going to trust that you can do it right. Make my list shorter. Okay, time to build up other elders. Scripture places a high responsibility on on what I'm seeking to do in this church. I'm told that I'm a shepherd of this church. And that come come judgment day, come judgment day, because I pursued being an elder. Come judgment day, I will give an account for your souls. That's a weighty responsibility. Which means my schedule has to factor in the fact that one day I will stand before Lord Jesus and give an account for your souls. The apostles said, as, as elders of the church, we've got to devote ourselves to prayer. We've got to devote ourselves to prayer. So it would be right for you to expect me to be in prayer regularly. For you, for this church, for issues within this church. You can see why I don't have time to be a coach right now. Because I'm a Christian. I'm a husband. I'm a teacher. I'm an elder. These are big responsibilities. But we've got to figure out what we are, what responsibilities we have in those roles, and then number three, what should my schedule be? What should my schedule be? I love I love Acts chapter six. Recently, because I need to learn Acts chapter 6. 
verse 1 through 4. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, which you could easily say, Now in these days when the disciples at Sovereign Hope were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You got to note here that the apostles said no to things that were not consistent with their roles. The, the, the apostles here are being asked to do something. Hey, uh, the widows aren't being fed the way that they should be. That's a noble service. That's not like, hey, come watch a football game with me. And I ain't got time for that. It's, hey, there are widows, like women in the church who don't have a husband taking care of them, and they're being neglected. Can you give some time of your schedule to do this? The apostles look at it and say, I'm not a, I'm not a table server. I'm an apostle. I'm devoted to prayer and to teaching. So I got to say no to this. I got to say no to this. So as you're figuring out your schedule, like I said, it starts with you knowing your roles. Because if you get asked to start filling your schedule with stuff that's not consistent with a role that you have, you got to get it out. Or else it's going to impose on the roles that you do have to be. See, if the apostles have said, oh man, we love widows. we got to make sure they're taken care of. Yes, everybody come. We'll start having meetings about how to take care of widows. We'll start setting up uh, us to be regularly there for daily distribution to the widows. Man, we want to take care of the widows. Nobody would have really been able to fault these guys for doing something good. But they recognized, hey, we can't do all the good stuff. It's not consistent with what we are. In order for us to be this, we've got to say no to some stuff. We've got to say no to some stuff. And that's where you, as you sit down to figure out your schedules, how are you going to give to this church with your time? You've got to write out, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a student. I'm a Chick-fil-A worker. I'm, a, I'm an Aeropostale worker. I'm a waitress. What are you? And what time do those things demand? And you've got to make sure that roles that need priority don't suffer because of other roles. When you kind of think through um, and really try to budget and, and, and set your schedule... It'll hopefully eliminate times where, where you're not sure what you should be doing. You ever have those times when, like, there seems to be, like, a break in your schedule and you're like, man, I don't really know what I should be doing right now. Like, what should I be spending my time on right now? If we think through our schedule in a really responsible way like this, what are my roles, what are my goals and responsibilities, then hopefully it will help eliminate some of the wasted time. Because as busy as we are, there's still a lot of time that we waste. If you want to see that, just begin to log everything that you do every day. And you'll probably begin to see that there's time that you didn't realize that you had. Two things to think about, and then I'll take any questions or, or comments. Number one, would people be able to identify my roles? Would people be able to identify my roles? Based on my schedule. Would people be able to identify my roles. Based on my schedule. At the end of each week. If we were to just look down at some type of log. And see how you spend all your time. Would people look at it and say. Hmm. Toby here must be a Christian because I see that he's doing what I would consider a Christian to do. Either Toby really likes shopping at Aeropostale, he must work at Aeropostale because he's there a lot during the week. So I'm going I'm to assume that Toby must be an Aeropostale worker. Toby seems to spend a lot of time on this, this campus here. He must be a student. 
He used to spend a lot of time in his room with books. He must be studying. He def- yeah, he's definitely a student. Would people be able to identify our roles based on our schedule? Or would we have to tell people that we're certain things, but we ain't getting anything done in those roles? And then secondly, do I have time to take on more roles? You may be able to look at it and say, gosh, like I'm only like a couple of things. Like, I could probably be some other things. I could probably be like a nursery worker. I could maybe be a, a, a small group host family. Do we have room to be other things? But then secondly, do I need to give, give up certain roles? Do I need to give up certain roles? Are there things that I look at and say, gosh, like I'm, I'm, I am that thing, but I'm, just, I'm not getting it done. I need to give that up. Or maybe I need to give up something else that I enjoy because I'm not getting this thing done. Would people be able to identify your roles based on your schedule? Do you have time to be more? Do you need to give up some roles? I think if you do this, it'll help drastically with how you schedule your time. It'll help give you a filter for when to say no to stuff. There was a, just as another example, there was a time earlier this summer where there was, um, there was somebody that wanted to hang out with me and Lauren. Um, and I struggled with giving our time to it because I examined like what we are. It didn't seem to fit in with our roles. It wouldn't have been a bad thing to hang out, but it was kind of like, well, these people don't go to our church. So that would be time that we could be spending with church people. These people aren't like, Friends, if you're not like really close friends. Um, and so I really struggle with should we let this in on a Friday night? Or should we say no to it? When you when you think through this stuff, it allows you to then filter requests that come to you. Do I have time in my schedule for that? Is that consistent with one of my roles? Is it consistent? There was a day, this is an example, there was a day that Jesse called me up and said, Hey, you want to go fishing? I looked at my schedule and I said, I, I'm, I got a lot of stuff I need to get done today. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm going to do that. Because I began to think about it, I was like, man, Jesse's just a committed member of our church. Like, here's a guy who wants to spend time with me. Like, I got to make this happen. I got to carve out some time to make this happen. This is an important thing because, because I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm a discipler, like I'm a pastor. Like, these things are, are roles that I am. I got to fit this in. So I hope that you can take these suggestions and use them as a filter for setting your schedule up so that you can commit time to this church in the way that we're going to need you to. Because in a sense, we're all church planners. Like This isn't my church. This is your church. The success of this church is contingent on how much time you put into it. I can't make the, church, I can't make the children's ministry good. I don't have time to even think about the children's ministry a lot of times. I finally had to sit down with some people and say, if, this, if children's ministry is going to happen, somebody else is going to have to start thinking about it because I don't, have to, I don't even think about it during the week because I'm getting ready for other stuff that i got to do. I'm an elder. I'm not a children's minister. We need some of you to be able to identify roles in this church as we move forward. All right, any questions, thoughts, comments on time or on money? Any questions that raises for you? You got to prioritize what's important for you and your role. What's, what roles are important for you to be? How can you do them well? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing one more song just to, to close it out today, um, as we have some time to just reflect. And to uh, even pray right now that the Holy Spirit would continue to challenge us and, and convict us and grow us and encourage us as we need it. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the time that we've had to examine your word today. God, today was 
hopefully a time where we can really begin to be um, application-driven about what you're calling us to do. God, we've, we've examined money thoroughly. We've, we've examined it extensively. God, I pray that we would, we would constantly be seeing ourselves in redemptive history, that we either have a responsibility to go as a missionary, to sell everything, to abandon this life, and to move overseas, to share the gospel with people that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Or we've got a responsibility to stay, to work hard, to earn money that we can give to support people that go. God, I pray that you would continue to use the Holy Spirit to to shape our view of money, that we would be we be able to resist the pride that comes sometimes from spiritual growth. Then instead, all credit, glory, and honor would be given to you as we see progress in our life. That our good works would shine brightly in our communities. It's where people would come to know you through the work of this church. And God, I pray for our time as a church. God, I have such a desire for for these people to fall in love with each other the way that the early church in Acts was. God, I know that in order to do that, it requires time. It requires time beyond Sunday morning. And it really does, it, it requires time beyond just meeting for an hour or two in small group. God, I pray that you would help us to see that this church has got to be a focus of our schedule. God, I pray that you would impress upon the people in their hearts to to seek out ways to plug in, to interact with people in this church. God, that we wouldn't have to schedule those times. That these times would naturally flow out of us desiring to love, to disciple, to encourage, to upbuild. God, help us to radically examine our schedules. That we would make sure that we are doing the important things. God, that we'd be faithful to budget our time. That we would recognize what it means to be a Christian. To be a student, to be a husband, to be a father. That we would do these things excellent. That we would step aside from roles that we can't do excellent if necessary. To make sure that we focus on the most important roles. God, help us to have the power to say no at times. So that we can say yes to your church Yes to the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.